Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all of you were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. Lord, I'm... uh, I'm committed to teaching through scripture because we're going to get to stuff that I probably wouldn't just sit around and pick on a Monday morning and say, hey, let's talk about this. Um, but Lord, we want to handle your word correctly. Father, we, we don't have an overabundance of correct thinking on this matter. You know that uh, divorce is, is super common inside the church. Uh, Lord, it's, it's statistically no different than outside the church. So, Father, we need to hear what you say about marriage, and we need to uh, learn it. We need to apply it. Lord, we also need to learn it so that we can share it with other people. Um, because, again, Lord, there's a, there's a famine of, of biblical wisdom when it comes to marriage. So, Lord, help us think right, help us act right, and help us guide others down the right path that you lay out. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for the worship that we've offered you so far. And Father, we plan to continue to worship as we look in your word, Uh, Lord, not to just find out stuff, but to better become servants of yours. So Father, teach us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, he says, you may notice in verse 1, he talks about the matters about which you wrote. And we don't have that side of the conversation. We only have one side of the conversation. Because they wrote a letter to Paul and they said, hey, what about this and this and this? And we didn't hear that part. So we're only getting to hear half of the conversation. But I am glad that they asked him about marriage. Because had they not, uh, I'm not sure that Paul would have sat down and decided, hey, I'm going to write this real um, practical stuff about marriage to these folks. So it's a good thing that it's in there. Now, if you are not married, what we need to do is think right, 
so that when you get married, you'll act right. Uh, If you are married, then we need to learn what the Bible says about marriage. And this is only one thing it says, but there are places that deal with marriage throughout the scriptures. But we need to take it, we need to learn it, and we need to apply it. And if you are no, if this is no longer real applicable to you because you're saying, I was married and now I'm a widow or a widower, uh, then it's still something I would like for you to learn because if you have kids and you have grandkids, it will give you the opportunity to impart some wisdom to them. And I know that if you've been married for years, you already have a lot of wisdom that you can impart. But we'll see if we can add to it from what the scripture says today. Divorce rates indicate that we need to know this stuff and that we need to share what we know. All right, the first section is to the married. And it says, starting in verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I'm really glad he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know, guys, some, uh, I, I, was, I was saying earlier that if Alice was in here, I would modify a little bit what I'm going to say, but she's not in here, so I'm going talk, to uh, talk plain to you. Some Christians seem to believe that sex is for procreation, and aside from procreation, it's verging on scandalous but Paul blows that out of the water here he says because of the temptation to sexual immorality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband so certainly it is for the purpose of procreation but it is also for the purpose of um, fulfilling the desires that God has given us in a godly way so while we're debunking myths um, have you ever heard Somebody say that Paul is very sexist. Paul is a misogynist. You know, he won't, he won't allow women preachers. And it's, he was just a product of his day. And we don't really need to listen to that anymore because that was a tradition back in the day. And he was, he was formed by that culture. And so that's the problem. So we don't really need to take seriously when he says women shouldn't teach in the church. Well, I've heard that charge level against Paul a uh, hundred times. But this goes against that because what Paul is saying here is absolutely radical and way ahead of his time when he deals with the husband and wife's relationship here. He says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, back in that day, you might expect him to say uh, that the wife is to give her husband his conjugal rights and that he has authority over her body. But instead, he goes and says that both ways apply, and he starts the conversation with her rights. Now, talk about out of step with the culture. He was, he was way ahead of his time. Let me read this quote to you 
from the New Bible Commentary by B. Winter. He says, It is not possible to find another reference in the literature of the ancient world which teaches that the husband surrenders his body exclusively to his wife on marriage. In fact, in the secular world, it was traditional on the wedding day. All right, check this out. It was traditional on the wedding day to declare to the bride that when her husband committed adultery with a prostitute or a woman of easy virtue, it was not a sign that he did not love her, but simply a way of gratifying his passions. All right, that would be a real downer at the close of the wedding ceremony, wouldn't it? Okay, so that is what was in keeping with their culture. But Paul had uh, instructions from the Lord, and so his were different. If you remember last week, we talked about how the ideal for Christian living in community can only be accomplished by mutual submission. We, we looked last week at who all supposed to submit to whom, and it was everybody submit to everybody, right? Ultimately, if you're going to have a successful God-honoring marriage, there is going to have to be a lot of submission going on there, too. Mutual submission in this area prevents sex from being weaponized. Let me explain what I mean there. Uh, Sometimes you will hear of a partner, normally the woman is the culprit, who will withhold affection as a way to punish the husband. Now the husband does this foolishness too, but he might do it with money, for example. Now, uh, that wouldn't work in my house because Melissa makes more money than I do. But you know what I'm saying. Uh, sometimes the man will be controlling by limiting the, her, her access to the money. And her only weapon of recourse is physical affection. Well, that kind of thing does not work out very well and leads to a bunch of uh, divorce. So both of these things, both of these uh, acts of control over the marriage partner... Both of them are evil, uh, you know, so don't do it. (laughs) If I just told the ladies, hey, Paul says do not withhold conjugal rights, and I didn't tell the husband, hey, don't lord it over the checkbook, then I would be taking the woman's weapon away and not the man's, and we don't want to do that. Both of those are evil things, and you don't want to do them in marriage. Verse 5 says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So if you do that, if you agree that for a time we are going to cease this, we're going to fast from that activity for a season of prayer, then Paul says here that it needs to be a mutually consented thing. Again, way ahead of his time. (laughs) He's not saying the man can declare this. He's saying you have to agree to it. And it's to be done for a specific purpose, a specific purpose of prayer, and for a limited amount of time. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you. What will make a good man steal bread? I say at risk of starvation will. So Paul doesn't want Christians to be dumb. He's very practical here. He says, keep your spouse's needs so well met that they don't need to look anywhere else. Paul is very practical. He is saying, take care of your husband, take care of your wife, so that they don't have any reason to try to fulfill those needs outside of marriage. Then if they look elsewhere, it is 100% on them. Now, I'm not saying that it's ever excusable 
to cheat on your partner. It is never excusable. But Paul is clearly saying here in the real world that you need to come together again so that Satan may not tempt you. And he realizes that there would be temptation if uh, they didn't come back together. Now, uh, there's always exceptions to this kind of thing. Obviously, there could be medical conditions or anything else like that that would that would keep one marriage partner from maybe fulfilling uh, all the requirements here. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the exception, not the rule. And obviously God is able to gift people to, to handle that kind of thing. And we'll read about that in the upcoming verses, how God can gift us for singleness or for marriage. But the point is, do not neglect your spouse and help Satan tempt them to look elsewhere and then be amazed when they look elsewhere. Let's look at the gift of singleness and marriage. Verse 6 says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. We all need to understand that there is nothing in the world wrong or sinful about being married, and there's nothing wrong or sinful about being single. God gets to decide how he gifts us. There can be some social stigma about being single. Um, You know, you can hear people say things like, oh, it's a shame that she never found a husband, implying that that was her goal and she was trying, but she just couldn't get it done. Or you might hear of a guy who is not married, oh, man, I wonder if he likes women. He's never gotten married. That kind of thing is so inappropriate and it, it takes away from the fact that God gifts us in a certain way and we're to live the way that God gifts us to live. So uh, condemnation like that has no place in the church. We need to recognize that God's gift to some people is singleness and that his gift to other people is marriage and it's a wonderful thing whichever one he decides to do. Then Paul addresses the unmarried and the widows, or the widowers. Uh, y'all are listening pretty quick today. I've been told I need, to, I need to watch out lest I go too long, so I'm trying to, y'all listen quick, because I'm trying to get through this. All right, to the unmarried and the widows in verse 8. He says, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So there is a right way and a wrong way to take God-given desires and work them out. If you need to have the benefits of marriage, then by definition, biblically speaking, you need to be married. Okay, Uh, that is what our society has forgotten today. Uh, Dr. Rogers used to say, why buy the cow if you're getting the milk for free? Okay. You don't live with the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. A lot of folks do, but it's uh, not the godly way to go. If God has gifted you with singleness, then that is awesome. You be single. What it is not good for you to do is ignore what God wants because it's more convenient for you. In other words, if you haven't been gifted with the gift of singleness and you uh, say, well, I want to stay single anyway because I don't want to be tied down, then you don't get the benefits without the commitment. And we all know that, but I think we've forgotten that. You know, I was telling you last week that, that Melissa and I have a relative who um, 
was explaining to us that this other relative was going to move away and, and live with her boyfriend. And this guy is a, a committed uh, churchgoer, and I would, would think and hope a committed believer. And yet he was acting like this is just a normal thing these days. And it is a normal thing these days, but it doesn't matter if it's culturally the thing to do if it's not what God commands us to do. So let me just stress If you want the benefits of marriage, you need to have the commitment and the responsibility of marriage. If it, uh, I'll trust that that's enough to say there, but if it's not and you want to come see me sometime, you come see me. But let me tell you, when folks talk to me about why they are a special case and they can't get married, it's always something like, um, well, you see, it's better for us on taxes if we don't get married. It's, uh, I'm not, I think I'm committed, but I'm not 100% sure I'm committed. So uh, we're just going to try this out. Uh, there's always some exception that somebody comes up with and says, I know that in general you should be married if you're going to cohabitate and, and get the benefits of marriage. But in my case, here's the reason why. Uh, well, you, you know as well as I do, that's self-delusion. It's, it's just uh, making up an exception for you, and then everybody else has to live with the other. And so don't do that. Um, Paul says in here, last week we read, he says, do not be deceived. (laughs) And so we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to see our case as something special and different because it it never is. It's just us making excuse for our sin. All right, then Paul addresses what to do about an unbelieving spouse. Um, Let me tell you how you get an unbelieving spouse if you are going by the the handbook here, the Bible. You only get an unbelieving spouse if you are an unbeliever and your spouse is an unbeliever and then the Lord saves you. Because let me stress, guys, we are not to marry unbelievers. Uh, The Bible tells us that so very clearly. Uh, You know, when it says don't be unequally yoked, people have taken that to, to some weird extremes about things that it doesn't mean. Uh, regarding racial relations and all kind of stuff. But what it does mean is we are not supposed to be married to an unbeliever. You know, the thing that is most important to me in my, in my whole life is my relationship with God, my relationship with His church. Uh, and so how in the world could Melissa and I be a partnership if she had none of those priorities? I mean, it just wouldn't work well, right? So sometimes... Christians can be married to unchristians because they were both lost when they were married, and then one of them was saved, and that's great, and Paul tells us what to do. Paul, however, doesn't think about uh, addressing what do you do if a Christian marries an unbeliever because he knows that we know better, all right? So we know better. If your children or your grandchildren come to you and say, Hey, I, you know, I love this person. I'm gonna get, we're going to get married, and I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to witness to them. Uh, they need stopped in their tracks, and they need a reality check there. Now, I don't know whether they'll listen to you. I, I have kids. I know they don't always listen, right? But we need to be clear that believers are not to knowingly marry unbelievers. Because uh, if you go into marriage saying, oh, well, God will change them, or I will change them, Uh, you know that may not work out, right? So what to do about an unbelieving spouse? Verse 10 says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. 
the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? All right, there's some potentially confusing stuff in there, so let's talk about it. Paul has in mind, again, marriages uh, that started out with two lost folks and one of them was saved. But if you are married to an unbeliever, Paul says don't leave that unbeliever because the testimony needs to be that you are faithful. You are loving God and you are loving them in the way that God tells you to. And that way the Lord can use your testimony and your life before this lost mate and hopefully they can and will be saved. Now the first part of this, we need to understand that Christians don't, don't divorce, okay? Um, now you may be thinking, well they do and they do at a rate that's no different from the world and that's true. It's just it, kind of inexplicable to me. Uh, it goes back to what we were talking about last week about how there's uh, just very little comprehension of what submission is. But if we are married to a believer, then we, uh, we both have the same boss, right? And so I know it's possible. I know things happen. Uh, I'm not sitting in judgment of anybody. But if you're married now, don't get divorced. And if your husband is driving you crazy... Uh, bring him to church. And if your wife's driving you crazy, bring her to church. And then uh, get counseling. You can get marriage counseling. Uh, you can come talk to me. Uh, I don't have any wisdom other than what I get from the Word, but that's a huge source of wisdom, right? So if we have anybody in here who is married and you're thinking, hey, I don't like this dude anymore. Uh, I'm thinking about getting rid of him, cutting him loose. Don't do that. <laughs> Come and talk to me. Uh, come and talk to some other believers who can show you uh, how to work things out, who can help you work things out. So Christians just don't need to get divorced in the first place. But he's saying to these folks that are married to an unbeliever, it's better for you not to separate from them either because you are that godly testimony in the household. So you do your part to be a great witness of grace to that lost husband or wife. Now, what is this business about your one partner making the other holy? Uh, that's the question here. If you're saved, does that save your spouse as well? <laughs> well, no. Uh, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? Verse 14 says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, to be holy means to be separated, to be set apart, right? Uh, the Old Testament, at least in the King James Version, talks about a holy woman who is a temple prostitute. 
Now, a temple prostitute doesn't sound like a holy woman, right, in the way we think of. She's not set apart to God. She's not set apart to holiness. But she is holy because she's set apart. Now, she's set apart to a bad thing rather than set apart to a good thing. So the word holy just means set apart. It doesn't mean uh, becomes a regenerate believer. Because verse 16 says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So if just being married to a saved person made them saved, then he wouldn't have had to add those two verses on there, right? Because he says, hey, look, there is a better chance that your husband will be saved if he has a faithful, God-fearing, loving wife in the house with him. And the same way, if the wife is unsaved and the husband all of a sudden becomes this selfless, godly uh, guy who treats her like Christ loves the church, then all of a sudden she's going to say, my goodness, something has happened to this guy. Uh, I saw this firsthand in a church where I worked previously. I've got to put that church where I worked previously in there because last week I talked about a deacons meeting where the deacons repented and I didn't say that wasn't here. (laughs) Okay, not that uh, our deacons may repent here, but it wasn't the story that I told last week. Okay, so at a previous church we had... um, a lady who, who came, and she was, uh, she was Catholic, and so she didn't want to come to the church, but she made some friends who loved on her and, and were really kind to her and, and reached out to her, much like our small groups are designed to do. And so she got in to be friends with them, and they said, hey, come on with us because we have some friends that hang together and, and just study the Bible. It's nothing, nothing weird, nothing scary. Come on. So she came to Sunday school. But, oh, she would not come to church because she was Catholic and she thought bad things would happen if she went into the Baptist church. Well, after a while, she got so close to these ladies that she said, well, whatever they're doing can't be too bad, so I guess I'll go to church. And she went to church. And she was saved under the the preaching of the gospel. Well, she went home and her husband was an agnostic and uh, he didn't care if she went to the Catholic church or the Baptist church or any other church. But... After a few weeks of her looking at the word and saying, how is a wife supposed to act in the home? And then coming home and and loving him and honoring him and submitting to him, he said, something has gotten into this woman that that is different than it was. And so he got curious and he started coming to church with her. And he was gloriously saved under the preaching of the gospel. And I'm telling you, that guy grew like a weed. He came in there and he would read. We had a suggested books table and people would go out and see some books that the the pastors of the church recommended. He would buy one of those things every week or two. And I'm telling you, in a year, he was one of the most uh, stable, solid, mature believers we had in the whole church. And so was she. So that loving, obedient, godly spouse can make a lot of difference in the marriage. Now, you can't save them, but the chance that they will come to Christ with you being that faithful witness there in the home is much greater than if they didn't have that witness in the home. The same thing applies to children. Can they be saved vicariously? Well, no, nobody can be. But they have a far better chance to be saved if they have at least one faithful believing parent. Verse 15 says, but if the unbelieving parent separates 
partner, sorry. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if you try to be there and you try to make the marriage work out, but the unbelieving partner says, no, I'm out of here, then it says the Christian brother or sister is not enslaved. What exactly does not enslaved mean? Uh, I can be honest. I don't know for certain. It must mean that they're not required to continue to be married because you can't really continue to be married if the lost partner leaves, right? It's not really up to you at that point. The question is whether it gives the Christian the right to remarry. And that is a difficult, difficult question. Um, So I'm going to say that I don't know for certain. And if you disagree with me, I'm not going to argue with you. But having given that caveat, I believe that if a Christian is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, then they can remarry but only to another believer, of course. Now, if you think the Bible allows for divorce but not remarriage, uh, again, I respect your opinion. I understand it, and that's a tough call, to be honest. Um, There was, uh, this is not a very settled issue. You can find folks who really want to be biblically faithful that think that if a spouse is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, then they can remarry. And you'll find folks on the other side of the fence that say, nope, it's not allowed in the Bible. And you can study all the relevant scripture and come, unfortunately, to a different outcome. But my thinking is that it is allowed, and that's why he says that you're not any longer, um, that you're free after that. So what do we do? Uh, What do we do about all this stuff? Well, first of all, if you're married... You put this stuff into play, right? If you are about to be married, you think right so that eventually you can act right. And if you are married, you advise people who come to you. So the first thing is follow the instructions for marriage given in the Bible. Now, this is not an extensive list. Uh, This is just one little aspect of marriage that is dealt with. A very practical aspect, but one aspect. The next thing is we do the work of finding out what the Bible says. You know, a lot of folks want uh, to have the knowledge that comes from Bible study, but they don't want to do Bible study. But really, you have to work. You have to dig into the text. You have to look. You have to find where all it talks about it and get a holistic picture of what the Bible says about marriage. So if you're willing to do that, you can gain a tremendous amount of wisdom from the Word of God regarding marriage. If you are not married, but want the benefits of marriage, then get married to a committed believer. If you're married to an unbeliever, be a faithful, prayerful witness to your spouse. The next thing I I don't think many of us do, but we ought to do, and that is keep getting better at being married as you mature in your faith. Um, I, I think it's safe to say that I am a better husband than I was 23 years ago. Do you, is that fair to say? Okay. Yeah. I'd been really embarrassed if she'd been like, no, you still. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm a better husband than I was 23 years ago. I, was, I got married 25 years ago. And, uh, you know, you learn as you go. And as I've learned to submit to the Lord, then I've learned to love my wife like Christ loves the church more and more. 
and uh, she does her part, and I do my part, and it's an actual happy marriage. Um, you know, I know a lot of folks end marriage, uh, and a lot of other folks live in marriage that is not fun and not rewarding and not fulfilling. Uh, so because of our attempt together to follow what the Word of God says regarding marriage, I am super blessed to have an actual happy marriage. And folks can have that if they marry a committed believer and then they work together to find out how it's supposed to work. So keep getting better. If you're married and you're happily married, keep on getting better. If you have kids and grandkids, pray for them and share your wisdom whenever you have the opportunity. Um, guys, I, we see uh, folks that cause so much drama for themselves. You know, I know bad things happen to people. People get cancer. People get sick. Uh, people lose loved ones, and all that stuff is unavoidable tragedy that happens. But then a lot of times folks will bring tragedy on themselves by doing stupid stuff, if we're just being candid here. And one of those things that they do is they marry an unbeliever, or they marry somebody and they don't do the work of learning how to be married. It's not, it's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. <laughs> the reason I say that is we are, we are very... Um, you look out for number one. We're very selfish creatures by nature. And when you get married, you've got to learn to adapt and to love that other person. So let's continue to work on our own marriages and let's get some godly wisdom to tell our kids and grandkids. None of this works, though, if we're not saved in the first place. So let me quickly tell you what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus in my place. I have sinned and you have sinned and we've all caused a rift in our relationship with God. And God solved that problem for us. We couldn't, we couldn't do anything about it. We couldn't fix it. We were bankrupt to fix this problem. But what God did was he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, perfect righteousness. And he is willing to take your account of sin and put it on Jesus and take Jesus' account of righteousness and put it in your place. So if you have never done that and you'd like to do that, you come see me afterward. We're going to sing. And during the invitation time, let me tell you what we do. If you want to be part of this church, you come up here and tell me, and we'll talk about what church membership involves and how you can get that ball rolling. If you are not saved and you want to know that you are, come and talk to me because I can introduce you to the one and only one that can save you. And if you have a prayer concern and you want to come up and say, hey, brother, I want you to pray for me, it would be my honor to do that. What are we singing, brother? All right, let's stand together.